Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, C4 Church. How are you this morning? It's good to see you. It's good to see you in North Durham. It's great to uh, be able to greet those of you who are watching online as well. So I just thought I'd come as a guest preacher and pick a really easy subject. So today we're talking about hell. Um, It's a guaranteed way to never get invited back. It's like, who was that guy? You are all going to be missing John so much after today is over. You're going to start emailing him, come back soon, come back soon. Now, I looked, I was told we were going through the parables this summer, right? That's what you've been doing. And all the good parables were taken. So I got, I got this one. Um, actually, I, I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek because I actually love this parable. Um, I love it not because it's about hell. Actually, if you, if you think, you know, what is it like to be a preacher? Um, first of all, you need better thoughts than that. But if you have those thoughts, um, preaching on hell is, is not something you tend to win points for with people. But it's really, really important. It's kind of like money, right? When, when preachers preach on money, they're always like, oh, I shouldn't have brought my friend today, right? That's what you are thinking. Um, but preachers who preach on money, it's always, it's always funny because I say to my preaching friends, it's like, well, when you preach on money, what nobody realizes is, number one, you give. Number two, if you're asking for money, you're probably going to give more money. Um, you don't get a cut of anything that comes in. And so usually what happens when you preach about money is you get a whole bunch of complaint letters and emails, and then, and then you're poorer because you also gave to the cause. So anyway, that's what happens when you preach on money. Uh, this is slightly better than preaching on money because um, not only does money go to an incredible cause, but, but this actually, what we do in this space, even on a quiet Sunday in July, makes an eternal difference. And the whole subject of eternity and the afterlife and hell has kind of fallen on hard times lately. Um, in fact, if, if you were to poll people, you'd realize that a majority of Canadians don't really believe in hell. Because none of us really like it. If you like the idea of hell, you probably have a problem. Like you need, you need psychological help if you're like, I love the idea that people are going to hell. You can probably think of one or two people you work with or a neighbor or a brother-in-law that you've at times thought that thought with, I understand that. But like, if you actually love the idea of hell, there's probably, there's probably some kind of psychosis or something you're struggling with. And we say, well, I'm not really sure whether the, what the Bible says about hell. And we try to back our way out of the whole subject of hell. And we say, well, you know, like we do with a lot of times, if we don't like what the Bible says, well, what did Jesus actually say about hell? Did you know that actually the person who spoke the most about hell was Jesus? Did you know that? That's actually true. Jesus talked about hell more than anywhere else. The Old Testament, you're saying, oh, that's Old Testament. No, 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 know your Bible. The Old Testament barely talks about hell. It's the New Testament, and it's not even the Apostle Paul, because a lot of people go, well, the Apostle Paul, wasn't he like hardcore? Yes, he was. But Jesus talked about hell more than the Apostle Paul did. And I think Jesus talked about hell and told parables about hell and stories about hell because he actually is concerned for us. That that sometimes you talk about things that are hard because you love people. Anybody who's been in a relationship for more than 10 minutes knows that it's not all sunshine and roses and picnics on the beach. I mean, you've got to have hard conversations. If your love is going to endure, if your relationship, if your friendship is going to endure, that means you have to talk about things that you don't want to talk about. And those of you who are parents, you know, 
I mean, all your romantic notions of parenting, they're dead within minutes of having children, right? It's like, oh, we're never going to fight. We're never going to argue. It's like, shut up, kid. You know, that's, that's where you go very quickly. And then you've got to have real conversations with your kids. And it's just, it's hard. So today we're going to talk about a subject that none of you want to talk about, and that's hell. And for those of you who maybe church isn't a normal time for you, you don't normally come here, but somebody tricked you into coming. They said you were going to lunch, but oh yeah, we got to go to church first, you know. Maybe you got tricked into coming today. You're like, oh, seriously, a preacher talking about hell? I get that. I get that. And if I was writing the Bible, if I was making up Christianity, which I assure you I am not trying to do, but if I was making up Christianity, I would have omitted this part which is why I'm not making up Christianity. That's why you're not the author of the gospel. That's why I'm not the author of the gospel, is because you and I would just surgically remove parts that we don't like. And if you study, the younger you are, the less you like the idea of hell. If you study demographics and how people think, if you're in your 20s, you're like, seriously? Maybe it's just that the people who wrote the Bible weren't very enlightened. Maybe it's just that Jesus, you know, if he was alive today, he would go, oh, that whole part about hell? (laughs) Yeah, I was just joking. You know what that was like for the culture back then. But the reality is the word of God speaks to us today. And in it, Jesus more than anybody talked about hell. And the question you probably asked yourself, the question that I've asked myself, the question that you've asked yourself, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, is this. If there really is a God, and I believe there really is a God, and I really believe that God is revealed through the Bible and that Jesus is God, I I believe that. But if there really is a God, and if God is loving, why would a loving God send people to hell? That's probably your question. And if it's not your question, it probably needs to be your question. That is a really good question to ask. If God is so loving, why would he send people to hell? In fact, for some of you, that's a deal breaker. Because you haven't been able to answer that question, you're not even sure whether you want to call yourself a Christian or you want to call yourself a version of a Christian. And you're like, I, don't, I just can't believe in a God who says he's all-loving and yet would send people to hell. It just doesn't make any sense. And to the post-modern, post-Christian, liberal, Western, democratic mind, that is a perfectly logical question. Why would a loving God send people to hell? In fact, the whole subject of an afterlife seems bizarre, doesn't it? I mean, really? Like, what's going to happen after we die? Most of us, you know, some of you probably like, okay, here's what I really believe. If you want to be honest, here's what I really believe. I just believe when you're dead, that's it. You just cease to be. It's kind of like your garden, right? You pull a plant out, you take it out from the roots, eventually it just dies and it disintegrates. That's what happens to people. Some of you probably believe that. That is not actually what the Bible talks about. That's actually not what the Christian faith is based on. Do you know what the Christian faith is based on? It's based on this idea that we are all resurrected, not just Christians, but everybody 
lives forever somewhere, and that Jesus, the whole Christian faith, is not built around Jesus' good moral teachings or the Sermon on the Mount. The whole Christian faith is built on this idea that there was a man who died, who was God, who rose again to forgive your sins. That's what Christianity is actually based on. So the whole idea of Christianity, the whole premise of Christianity is that Jesus died and he rose again, and he invites you into the life that he experienced when he conquered sin and he conquered death. The whole basis of the Christian faith is actually resurrection. And again, that spins a lot of our brains and we're like, are you kidding me? Really? That, okay, okay. But that, that is the heart of the Christian faith. But I know that whole idea of an afterlife seems weird to you. And, and at times, some days, it seems really weird to me too, really. Because you're an empirical thinker. You're like, I'll buy what I can see, what I can touch, what I can taste, what I can smell. I can't quantify. I can't imagine. I can't, I can't even conceive of anything beyond this life. So I'm not even sure I want to believe in an afterlife. And yet, in your quantifiable life, there's all kinds of invisible things that impact you. On my 23rd birthday, I went to a good friend's house in Toronto, and I was really excited about turning 23 because I was born on like March 23rd, and I'm like, whoo, finally, 23 on the 23rd. I don't know why that mattered a whole lot, but it did to me. And so I went to some good friend's house for dinner. She had recently gotten married, and she and her husband had me over. They had an apartment at Young and Bloor. Uh, great friends I'd known for years, and uh, she made me dinner for my birthday, which was really, really fun. And uh, I went to her place. They served me chicken. I started to cut into the chicken, and I noticed that the center was pink. And it wasn't just pink, it was gelatinous. Do you know that kind of like raw? It wasn't like, I wonder if that's a little bit pink. Let me turn it in the light. It's like pink rubber jello in the middle. And I was faced, single guy, I was faced with a really ethical dilemma. Do you say anything or not? Because I knew about raw chicken and I knew, you know, I'd heard the rumors of what it could do and everything. But I thought, well, I'm just going to be polite. So I cut into it, and I ate it. Yeah, you know where this ends. <laughs> In a bathroom for days and days and days and days and days. And I thought, you know, I'm immune to this. Because really, how bad can chicken be? Really. You know, it's a little bit pink. It's a little bit jello-like. Okay, it's a little bit cold. But, I mean, is it... Can it really be that bad? And I don't want to be a guest. And, you know, I was a Christian at the time. Maybe God will just forgive me because I'm being a really nice person. And he'll make me immune from the impact of, like, having undercooked chicken, raw chicken, to be really honest. And uh, I was fine for the first 12 hours. There's no problem at all. And then about 12 hours later, my stomach, I was at work the next day. My stomach started to get really sore around the belt line. And I thought, oh, I don't think I'm going to be able to finish my shift. It was horrible. I was 23 years old, sickest I've ever been in my life. I lost pretty much everything in my body. I think at certain points, organs actually disappeared from my body. It was horrible. It was horrible. I was sick for a week. And I remember I was a Don in residence at the time. I was finishing my undergrad. I had to postpone all of my exams because I was too sick to study. I could barely get out of bed. And because I was a Don, I had a bathroom that was actually in my room. I didn't have to go down the hall in residence. And, like, my mattress was over here, and the bathroom was probably over here. It wasn't a giant room. 
And I remember getting up over and over again, going from the bed to the bathroom, probably 15 feet. It would take me 20 minutes, and I would crawl, and I would think to myself at 23, this must be what it's like to be 90 years old. I had like no energy, no passion, nothing. Now, what did that? What did that? That was a very real physical consequence, but what did that? Something invisible that I couldn't see, that I had heard about, and I thought, nah, it's worth the risk. It wasn't. Guess what? I've never eaten raw chicken again. And I would not recommend that you do it because I remember. And how is it? I mean, for years, centuries, people study these things. And why would people get sick in certain things? You know, this whole idea of germs and bacteria. And really, there can be something called salmonella that you can't even see. And it's microscopic, but it can actually have real impact on you. Yes. Yes. In fact, there's all kinds of things you can't see. Do you know how many frequencies are flying through the air right now? I mean, there's not just Wi-Fi here in the rooms that you're in. I mean, there, there are LTE signals and 3G signals, and there are radio signals, and, there, and you can't see any of it. And you're like, well, I can't see it, so it's not real. Absolutely it's real. You just need to be able to tap into it. And so I think, as a friend, you have to ask the question, is there something after we die? And I understand the picture you want to paint. Everybody gets in. God is love. We all make it in the end. It's going to be fine. And I understand your objections because you're like, okay, well, what about people who have never heard about Jesus? Just because you were born in the Western world and you happen to be born in a Christian or post-Christian culture, you heard about Jesus, you made a decision to follow him, and therefore you're on the right side of eternity and everybody else is on the wrong side of eternity. Like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Is that like, who thinks of stuff like that? That's so archaic. I get that. I think that too. But then I look at what Jesus has to say. This is what he has to say. John 15, and by the way, we're going old school today, okay? Nothing is on the screens. It's just a preacher and his iPad. That's it. Totally old school. And it's a fourth generation iPad too, may I add. So it's completely old school. Uh, John 15, beginning at verse 18. Jesus is talking about the Pharisees. So he's actually talking to a religious group of people. And he's answering the question about like, okay, to what extent are adults morally responsible for their actions? Right? Like, to what extent are are, are people spiritually responsible? To what standard will God hold people? So he's talking to the religious elite. And he says, you know what? They're guilty. They're guilty. If you're not a church person and you're like, I'm so sick of religious people, do you know who disliked religious people as much as you do? Jesus. So you got to get alongside Jesus because Jesus is like, I'm sick of the religious people too. In fact, I'm not here to start a religion. I'm here to start a relationship with you and with people. And I want to turn things over so that they are the way they were supposed to be at the very beginning. And Jesus says this. He says, they, the religious elite, the Pharisees, a denomination in his day, would not be guilty if I had come, if I had not come and spoken to them. In other words, if I had never shown up, if they never heard this message, they wouldn't be guilty. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus came along, and we all think, I don't know whether you've thought this, you know, if I really heard from Jesus, I would believe. 
But I get nervous because I think, well, lots of people heard from Jesus and they didn't believe. And lots of people heard from Jesus and went, that can't be right. And the Pharisees, the religious elite, were some of them. And he said, if I hadn't done such miraculous signs among them that no one else could do, they would not be guilty. But as it is, they have seen everything I did, yet they still hate me and my father. You know what Jesus is saying here, what Paul is saying in Romans 1, what Jesus says in a few other passages? And this is leading into the parable we're going to look at about heaven and hell. He's saying, God will judge you based on what you know. That that what about all the people who haven't heard? What about God? Paul says later on, he says, you know, they have the heavens. They can see. They, 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 there's sort of this moral code that all of us have. And even people who reject Christian morality are like, well, you can't steal my property. No. Well, no, you can't take the life of another human being. Well, no, you can't treat somebody that way. That's wrong. Why is it wrong? I think because God put a moral code in all of us, that that's actually part of the DNA of the universe. That's part of the sequence of the universe because God created it. And Jesus said, see, they have that. And Carrie, let's be honest, you're not a very good judge. I'm a terrible judge of character. Why? Because I'm sinful. But your heavenly father is perfect. And so trust him to figure out person by person, bit by bit, where the line in eternity falls. You don't have to go and create categories on your own about, well, these are the people who are in and these are the people who are out, right? People who think like me, they get in. People who don't think like me, they they get out. Well, this particular nation gets in this nation. You don't have to create those categories. God is perfectly capable of doing that. And he has a way of figuring it out through Jesus that is perfect. But does that mean everybody ends up with a Christ-filled eternity? No, it doesn't. And that's the part we don't like. Jesus, Jesus talked a lot about hell. He talked a lot about eternity. He talked a lot about judgment. He said one day there'll be a separation. You see, this world, it's all mixed up. It's good and it's evil. If you don't believe in evil, just read the headlines. Look at our systems. Look at what we do to each other. Look at how people kill and steal and destroy and rape and murder and hate. This world is really messed up. And yet you see the sunrise. And you sit at a dock, the end of a dock in the summer. And you watch the loons. And you see the sparkle in a two-year-old's eye. And you feel your heart sore when the people you love come near you. And then you hear seconds later of another terrorist bomb that went on. And you're like, what is this world? It's all messed up. It's good. And it's evil. And it's mixed together. And Jesus says at some point there'll be a separation. And the evil won't be able to infect the good anymore, as C.S. Lewis put it. And there'll be a separation. And it's not happening now. It's like, why is it not happening now? 
It's not happening at now because God wants as many people as possible to make a choice on the side of Christ. As many people as possible to choose good, to choose God, to choose evil. Why hasn't Jesus come back again? Well, the scripture is pretty clear. Peter, who hung, hung out with him a lot, Peter said, I'll tell you why Jesus hasn't come back yet. Jesus hasn't come back yet because he doesn't want a single person to perish. And the reason he may not have come back yet is because he wanted you to hear this this morning. And not just you, but others, because he loves you and he wants to forgive you and he wants to save you. That's what Jesus wants. You're like, well, I just don't like the whole hell part. Here's a principle that'll work for you in life. Just because you don't like it doesn't mean it isn't true. There are lots of things you don't like that are still true. Anyone ever dropped a phone in the toilet? All right, hands up, hands up. All right, thank you, honest people. The rest of you, you're lying. I know that, you've done it, probably some of you. Hey, here's the reality. I hate that when you drop a phone in the toilet, it stops working. I hate it. And you're like, I put it in rice and everything and it didn't work. I know, I know. And it's terrible. And you rail at the manufacturers. Why can't you make waterproof phones and all that? But the reality is you had a phone at work. You dropped it in the toilet. It doesn't work anymore. I've dropped a phone in the toilet. I've dropped one in the lake. That was great. And I could see it was working. I would ring and it would still go. I would think there would be a fish at the bottom who would be like, God, are you there? Are you there? And then he sees the phone. It's like, it's ringing. There is a God. Anyway, that was my story at the time. So I try not to bring my, my phones around water anymore. Why? Because I've had dropped them in water. They stop working. I don't like it, but it's true. I don't like the fact that if you drive the wrong way on a divided highway, you will tend to get into a serious accident. I don't like it, but it's true. I don't like the fact that if I eat everything I want, I become a bigger man than I want to be or need to be. I don't like that at all. You know, one of my questions for God is, why doesn't broccoli taste like ice cream? That's proof of sin right there. It's proof of the fall and the staining of all of creation. It's like broccoli should taste like ice cream. Ice cream should taste like broccoli. Then we'd all be fit. But anyway, that's my little rant. Um, so, so I don't like that, but it's true. There are lots of things you don't like about life that are true. And just because you don't like it doesn't mean it isn't true. And isn't it good that we have people who come alongside us and say, Carrie, if you eat all the ice cream you want, which would be three times a day for me, you will not have a good life. In fact, you will become very large and very unhealthy and very sick. Thank goodness we have that. Thank goodness somebody comes along and says... Hey, don't do that. Hey, when you teach your 16-year-old how to drive, what are you nervous about? You're nervous about, well, make sure you come to a full stop. Make sure you use your signal. Make sure you check your mirrors. Make sure you check your blind spot because your mirrors don't even cover it. Make sure you're going the right way down a divided highway. Make sure you don't speed. Why? Because you know there are things that you don't like that are still true. And if they ignore the fact that they're true, they're going to be in big trouble. And so just because you don't like it doesn't mean it isn't true. And so you know what you and I do? We just blame God. 
We're like, well, God, you could have created a better system than this, but you didn't. And so we're mad at him. We blame God for hell. Well, today I want to introduce another way of thinking about hell. And this leads directly into the parable. The other way of thinking about hell is in the form of a question. What if hell is actually your decision to live without God, not God's decision to live without you? What if hell is actually your decision to live without God? And what if God, respectful as he is of human beings, just decides, I'm going to honor your choice about me into eternity. I'm just going to honor that. And what if heaven and hell are not so much God's decision about you? Because I'm going to share with you what God's decision about you is. He loves you. He died for you. He rose again for you. He's inviting you into forgiveness. He's inviting you into love. He's inviting you into hope. He's inviting you to a life that's rich in Jesus. God made his decision about you thousands of years ago. In fact, you can go back and say, before you were born, God made a decision about you in Christ. That when you messed up your life, when you made a mistake... When you thought you knew better, Jesus covered that on the cross. Jesus died, and he rose again, and he offers you forgiveness. And he decided he's crazy about you. He loves you. God made his decision about you a long, long time ago and invited you into life. And not just you, everybody. For God so loves the world, world. That means every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every culture, every people group, every single person. God decided a long time ago, he made up his mind about the world, as broken and messed up as it is. He decided, I love you and I love it. And I love people and I love humanity. And I provided a way back through Jesus. And you think that's so exclusive. No, it's not. It's the most inclusive thing you could ever have. If you look at all the world religions, it's about working your way to God or doing the right things or the right sevenfold path or the right this or the right that. God's like, no, you're going to mess that up. So here's it. It's not about what you have done. It's about what Jesus has done. And he died on a hillside for you 2,000 years ago. And he extends his offer of life to you, regardless of what you've done, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your story. There is no exception to that invitation. It includes you. So what if hell isn't God's decision to live without you? What if hell is your decision to live without God? What if God's so respectful of you and of free will, this thing he gave us, which we usually exercise against him, not for him, what if he just decides to honor your choice about him? And that takes us into this parable from Luke 16. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. If not, I'll read it to you. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, beginning at verse 19. Jesus said, and again, he's talking to the religious elite. 
There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen, who lived each day in luxury. This guy had the custom home. He had the threads. He had the SUV. He had the vacations. He had the vacation house. He's loaded. And he's religious. He's not an irreligious person. He's just not a Christian. He's, he's, he just really doesn't know what to do with Jesus because he's all caught up in his own ideas about God and he's loaded and he's rich and he's used to self-control. He's like, I can determine my whole future because I have money and I have options. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. Now, we definitely have poverty in our culture, and we definitely have poverty in the world. But most of us probably haven't seen the level of poverty unless you've traveled that a guy like Lazarus would be in. I mean, there was nothing. There's no government programs. There's no social safety net. There's nothing for this guy. And it's funny, of all the characters Jesus talks about, In his parables, he talks about, you know, there was a man who had two sons, the older brother, the younger son, the prodigal son. He'd tell stories like that. There was a man who had a net. There was a man who went out to sow. Never names anybody. The only person, even the rich guy doesn't have a name. Historically, his name was Dives. Kind of a weird name. But Dives, it's because that's Latin for rich. So people just called him Dives. Dives and Lazarus. Lazarus is the only person that gets a name. God's close to the poor. He knows him by name. As Lazarus lay there longing for the scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. He was probably disabled. Probably couldn't get up on his own. Finally, The poor man died and was carried, look at this, by the angels to be with Abraham, kind of father of the Jewish people. Then look at the next verse. The rich man also died and was buried. (laughs) It's interesting, no matter how much money you have, you can't inoculate yourself from death. Walt Disney tried. He had his body frozen. He had all the money, all the power in the world, but he had his body frozen. So far, that hasn't proved very effective at resurrection. We think we have a better way in Jesus, but that's okay. I mean, all the money in the world, at some point, you're just going to die. You can be a billionaire. You're going to die. You can't inoculate yourself against death. And his soul went to the place of the dead. Sometimes it's translated as Sheol or hell, Hades. They're in torment. So he's in torment. The rich guy's in torment. He saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. A complete reversal. Complete reversal. You're like, wait, wait, wait. What what is the moral of this story? Is it that poor people go to heaven and rich people go to hell? In that case, if you're a student, you're like, yes. All right. It's awesome. I'm in automatically, right? No, 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 no. That's not where this parable goes because where. It's unclear in Scripture. The clear always explains the unclear. So clearly, clearly, salvation is through Jesus. He would make that clear. He's making another point. He's making, I think, and and I think he's making many points. I think one of the points Jesus is making is there's a difference between the self-reliant and the dependent. There's a difference when your money buys you everything 
and you're inoculated against life, and you're self-sufficient, and you're self-reliant, and you're like, I'll make up my own mind about God, I'll make up my own rules about God, I don't really need God, he's just a convenient way to get me more money, that's what I'll do. And, and Lazarus, he's like 100% dependent on the charity of others, 100% dependent, you could say, on God. And Jesus might have said, unless you become like a little child who's what, 100% dependent? And trust. Unless you become like Lazarus, who's what? 100% dependent. I think that's where Jesus is going with this. But it's, this parable isn't about money so much as what money can do to us and how it can corrode us. And in case you think you're Lazarus in this parable, I mean, maybe if you're a student, you are. Most of us are the rich guy. I mean, you're making $35,000 a year in North America struggling to get by. That still puts you in the richest 5% of people on the planet. It does. So think of yourself as the rich guy. It's far more scary that way. His soul went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, because there's this chasm, Father Abraham, have some pity. All of a sudden, for the first time in his life, he needs pity. He needs mercy. Send Lazarus, this guy, I didn't even know his name. He just, you know, get the police to get him out of here. He's on my gate again. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. Now, what does that mean? You can read some near-death experience accounts. And sometimes there's one book, 23 Minutes in Hell, that says, no, it's flames and it's like this. You can, you can read others. And people say, and C.S. Lewis would probably fall in this camp, that there are some levels of hell where basically... You just get you in a feedback loop over and over again, devoid of grace. Jean-Paul Sartre said hell is other people. C.S. Lewis might say, no, hell is you, devoid from grace. You know that negative feedback loop in your head again and again and again? Well, this person's wrong or that person's wrong or this doesn't work or this doesn't work. It's just you, but there's a chasm. Hell for sure is a removal of the presence of Christ and of love and of grace. And the rich guy says, I'm in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And beside, this is Abraham speaking, who he would have claimed as a spiritual father. There's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. In other words, there's a divide. And this is what the Scripture consistently teaches, that there's a divide, that right now it's all mixed together. You've got heaven and you've got hell every single day. You've got a little bit of evil and a little bit of good mixed together in your life. And in eternity, they separate. And there is pure joy or the pure removal of love and joy. And some of you have said, you know what hell is? Hell is my life right now. If you went through the divorce I went through, if you had the job I have, if you had the childhood I had, that's hell. Well, yes and no. I don't want to play down your story, but I just want to say, all the reformers would say it, Calvin would say it, you have been the beneficiary, the recipient of common grace. What is common grace? It meant the sun came up on you today. It meant when it rains, it rains on the just and on the unjust. It means that somebody looked at you and smiled. 
It means that you had the opportunity for love and relationship, and in eternity, that's gone. It's all good or it's all evil. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. Okay, hey, if it's too late for me, tell my family. For I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. So, okay, maybe it's too late for me. Maybe I'm done for. But, like, I care about my brothers. I care about the people I used to love. Like, at least warn them. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them, your brothers can read what they wrote. In other words, you've got the Scripture. Oh, yeah, but nobody really takes that stuff seriously. You don't understand. Nobody really listens to the Bible. Nobody really, like, I know when they read the Scripture, I mean, nobody really thinks that stuff is real, but it's real. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, they're not going to take that serious. But here's an idea. Here's a proposal. Okay, you got that Bible stuff, but nobody really believes that. So if somebody is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. All right, so maybe I can just go back and go, guys, it's real. Then they'll repent of their sins and turn to God. Sounds logical, doesn't it? But Abraham said, this is so chilling. Don't miss it. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And guess what? Someone did rise from the dead. His name is Jesus. And he extended an invitation to you and to me. And he said, hey, Carrie, you know that stuff in your life that like messes with your head and makes you want to hate rather than love? And you know, you know that, that jealousy and that selfishness you struggle with? And you know that insecurity and you know that feedback loop that's just always so negative and so destructive? You know that stuff, Carrie? I know that stuff. Okay, well, guess what? In eternity, you have to make a choice. It's either it's all that or you're with me. And I'm inviting you. I'm inviting you. I'm asking you to come. I'm inviting I'm I'm forgiving your sins. It's all taken care of. No matter what your story is, I've got a better story and I want to write a better story in you. So will you trust me with your life? Will you trust me? Somebody did come back from the dead. You think about it, Thomas went up to him and said, really, really, like your hands, for real, really, really? And some of you are like, really, really, really? I was like with chicken, really, 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 really? You know what warns us about the future? Love does. Love does. Because in the same way you warn your kids about, hey, you know what? I don't know whether you should be hanging out with that person because you kind of know as a parent. In the same way you warn your teenager, hey, I'm not sure you should be in on that party. Hey, I don't think you should drive that way. Hey, I'm not sure that's the wisest choice. Why do you say those things? Because you love them. Because you love them. And some of you are like, well, 
Why is the world so unjust? Why is the world so difficult? Why is the world, why did he do that to me? Why did she do that to me? Why did this happen to me? How come, when is this going to be avenged? When is this going to be cared for? When is somebody going to take this seriously? You know what? Jesus goes, that'll happen. But in the meantime, it's a mixture. And I'm warning you and I'm inviting you because I love you. So where does this leave us? With an invitation. Nothing changes from the usual fare and preaching. God loves you. God made you. God forgave you. God's inviting you. But for me, when I read a parable like this, the urgency of that invitation goes up. I'll tell you what else goes up. The urgency of what we're doing here. The urgency of what we're doing at Conexus Church where I serve. The urgency of like when, when there's a world at the beach today because it's a beautiful day. If you really love the world the way Jesus loves the world, you're going to tell people, you're going to invite people, you're, you're going to share this message with people that you love. Why? Because you love them in the same way Jesus shared it with you, because he loves you. Because maybe in the end, hell isn't God's decision to live without you. It's your decision to live without God. And maybe it's not God's decision to live without this world for which he died. It's the world's decision to live without Jesus. And you and I can share that message. You and I, I think the most important thing you can do with your life is tell the people you love, pray for the people you love. And perhaps it can start with those of you who have been on the fence, those of you who are like, I don't really know, I'm going to give you an invitation to surrender your life to Christ today. I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that. And what happens in a moment can linger, will linger throughout eternity. But to accept that invitation that Jesus extends to you. And if that's you, if your heart has been beating a little bit hard today, if you're like, wow, I never thought about it this way before, I just want to invite you. You know what? God loves you. He forgives you. He invites you. And eternity is about what you do with Jesus' invitation. So let's pray. Father, I just, this is such a hard teaching and so foreign to a 21st century mindset. And if there are hard edges around this teaching, may they only be used to move us to action. Fear is a short-term motivator. Love is the ultimate motivator. May we hear today that you love us, that you love the world, and that because you love us, you told us about this. And I just pray for those people who maybe have are not clear on whether they've ever made a decision about you or for those who know that they haven't. I pray that you would move them to accept the invitation that you extend to them this morning by deciding to follow Jesus. And if that's you, would you just pray this prayer with me right now? Lord Jesus, today maybe more than I have before 
I've seen that you've come to me in the middle of this world, which is a mixture of good and evil, and offered me a present of good and a future of good, of forgiveness, of grace, of love, and I want to live my life on the side of love. I want to live my life on the side of Jesus. And today, I accept your invitation to trust you with my life. I ask you to forgive my sins, and I pray that you would come to reside in me, that your Holy Spirit would take up residence in me, that you, Lord Jesus, today I'm declaring you to be my Lord and my Savior. For all of you who decided to do that today, welcome to life, welcome to hope, and welcome to a Christ-filled eternity. And Father, in the remainder of the service, I just pray that you would help us Remember before you the people that we care about, that maybe in love we need to share this message with because we want them to be on the side of life, not the side of death, the side of hope, not the side of fear. We want to be them when the great separation comes. We want them to be on your side, alive in the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. And Lord, bless the mission of this church and both of its locations online as it goes forward in this. Give all of us the courage to invite friends. Give all of us the courage to be the church here in this nation of Canada, a nation that increasingly is deciding to live without you. And I pray you would change that and change us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com. Thank you.